Welcome everybody to the AME Radio Show. I'm your host, Jason Dowd, and for the next hour, we're going to be bringing you all the great news from the art, music, and entertainment industries. And I have two great guests that I'm going to be bringing on. We have Adele Park. She is the author of Gadzooks, which is an audiobook. Very funny audiobook about some really important topics. We also have Robert Mazur coming on. He is a former DEA agent who infiltrated the Medellin cartel, and he is the author of The Infiltrator. So that's coming up here in just a second. And if you want to go to our website and see all the past guests that we have had on and all of our future guests, go to www.theamemagazine.com forward slash radio. Or just go to www.theameradiomagazine.com. There you click on the radio link and you'll be able to see everything that we've done, anything that we have coming up, and all kinds of news and entertainment. You can also go to our magazine, The AME Magazine, which is an arts and entertainment magazine right from that website. You can also see our television, see all the places that we've been to and people that we've met. And of course, if you like things that go bump in the night, we have a brand new magazine called Beyond the Limits. You're going to love that magazine if you like things that go bump in the night and scare you. But before I get into any of my guests, I want to I want to share with you a amazing quote that I read that I read over the weekend. It says, "The true sign of intelligence is not knowledge, but imagination. And that is so true. I apply that every day of my life. And you know who, say, who said that? Albert Einstein, one of the most wisest men that have ever walked this earth. So let's get into our first guest right now. I have him on the phone. His name is Robert Mazur. He's an author, and he spent a long time infiltrating the Mayink cartel. And what's really cool about it is his book is going to be turned into a movie. His book is called The Infiltrator. Welcome to the show, Robert. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and thanks for the invitation. <laughs> Not a problem. So, uh, first of all, this, your your life is amazing. Uh, how did you get into infiltrating a cartel, and how did it all play out? Well, um, by the time that I volunteered for that, I had been an agent for 14 years, and much of that time I spent working uh, with task forces attempting to identify the command and control of the Colombian cartels and the higher-level people involved in laundering their billions in drug proceeds. And we ultimately came to the conclusion that uh, the most effective technique to use would be to actively infiltrate their money-laundering systems. Um, I have a background, um, unlike many in law enforcement, I have a, a degree in business administration finance, I worked in a bank, I worked in a brokerage firm, um, I worked on white-collar type uh, paper-intense investigations for many years, and so um, for someone to play the role of a corrupt businessman, I had the background um, to, to I, I think, be able to do that most effectively. So I... Volunteered to be a long-term undercover agent. I went through some undercover school training, and then I was given, um, thankfully, about a year and a half to put together what I think is one of the more sophisticated fronts that's been used in long-term undercover. My role was to be that of a Italian-American mob-connected corrupt businessman, um, and with the help of uh, two and three informants, two in New York that were associated with uh, organized crime. Um, Italian organized crime, and one in Colombia. Um, I was embedded in real businesses, an investment company, a mortgage brokerage business, an air charter service with a private jet, a jewelry chain with 30 locations on the East Coast, and even a brokerage firm with a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. So I was well backstopped, um, and uh, with the help of some informants, was introduced to some mid-level money brokers, money launderers, um, 
ultimately, over a period of several years, worked my way up the uh, chain and was dealing with quite a few people who were reporting directly to Pablo Escobar, including his principal consigliere, his lawyer in uh, Medellin, and, and a number of other of his um, highest-level managers. And I became ultimately a conduit for them uh, to the seventh-largest privately held bank, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI, uh, which was a bank that, like unfortunately others, um, had an insatiable appetite to take deposits from the underworld, people possessing money, uh, seeking secrecy from governments, um, not just drug traffickers, arms dealers, terrorists, um, people pilfering treasuries, people wanting to deal with prohibited nations, tax evaders, um, even the intelligence community. And so um, I, I found myself in a very, very interesting um, and awkward crossroads between drug traffickers, um, arms dealers, terrorists, tax evaders, um, the intelligence community, and unfortunately some political figures around the world and, and some in our own country that um, that were involved in illegal activity. Now, how do you, even though you're introduced to these guys, how do you gain their trust? That's got to be tough, um, you know, because they don't trust anybody. Yeah, you know, my uh, approach was to take a position of authority. Um, I had to have something that they needed um, that would entice them to want to work with me, not for me to be knocking on their door. And so our undercover plan started really without me for the first six months. Initially, my partner, who played more of a street-level uh, guy who picked up suitcases of cash and had this mysterious boss who agreed to help him to open accounts through which he could move smaller amounts of money, say $50,000 a week or so, um, would constantly be telling the people he was dealing with in the underworld that, you know, it's too bad my boss wants to stay in the shadows if you could ever talk him into dealing with you directly. The resources he has are immense, and he'd be able to move millions of dollars at a time. And, you know, over a period of six months and after the period of time, that period of time, um, a number of smaller amounts being wandered, um, the natural thing happened, and they were knocking on the door asking for a meeting with me. And actually, I was visited in the Tampa Bay area um, at an undercover home with um, from by a money broker from Colombia, which really started the big big ball rolling. You know, I I am so fascinated by these crime shows and stuff on TV and how they start, you know uh, find the criminals based on little specks of stuff. But one of the hardest things that I could imagine finding out is a white collar crime because it's you know you can easily doctor a book and then how do you know if it was doctored or not? How do you go and find the money laundering? And, and do it at such a high level, yet also protect yourself and do what you need to do because that that it's got to be it's got to be very uh, intimidating and very complicated. Well, it's it's also very dangerous. I mean, you're talking that the transactions begin with a receipt of a series of suitcases or boxes. Oftentimes, we'd receive boxes of a million dollars, even as much as two million dollars at a time, in U.S. currency. And so when you're dealing on the street, and sometimes these those amounts of money are received in not very nice places. Um, I know that we received $2 million, I remember, on the uh, lower 
the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and if any of the, your listeners are familiar with that area, just a little bit uh, north of the uh, South Ferry, uh, that's an area of public housing, um, heavy drug use, uh, heavy crime area, and um, in, in a small bodega there that uh, sold cigarettes and milk, um, there was $2 million uh, sitting in two boxes that were handed over to one of my fellow undercover agents. Um, so, you know, you run the risk of people ripping you off after you, after you start the process of getting that money, but then um, you also run the risk of um, detection uh, by the bad guys because, you know, we are we're cops, and so we try to take advantage of some of the potential intelligence we can get from a courier dropping off money. I mean, in its simplest terms, it's possible that the courier dropping off the money is going to go back to a counting house where there's a pot of uh, gold at the end of the rainbow that can be seized. And so at times, law enforcement puts, in my view, for my undercover operation, a little bit more surveillance resources out there than, than you'd hope that they would have, and they try to follow these guys back. But what we as cops sometimes don't do is give the bad guys enough credit for being smarter than us, which generally they are. And um, they oftentimes have counter-surveillance teams out there. And there were times, unfortunately, more than more than two, where uh, our surveillance people were picked up on. And the next thing I knew, I was being accused of being a DEA undercover agent. And, you know, that's not a very comfortable thing to be accused of by people who kill thousands of people at, at the snap of the finger. How do you protect yourself throughout this? I mean, how do you protect your family? I mean, this has got to be a really uh, tough thing to do. Um, how do you deal with it? Yeah, you know, I I had, a, at the height of the operations, I had, you know, a little bit of contact face-to-face, and I might be away traveling around the world for a month and then come home for a day, day and a half, and, um, you know, that that was a dangerous thing to do, but you need to... You know, it's important, obviously, your family needs your support, but what what happens during this process, it's a very natural reaction to a very unnatural environment, and that is that you, you know, the day, day or day and a half when you come back is filled with such um, emotion and, and so, so much um, friction that it, my, my wife and I... Um, Luckily, I think <laughs> we decided, and she decided that you know it would be better for me to come home once the operation was over. Because when I was home for a day and a half, I, I still had my cell phone. My you know bad guys were calling me, and and um, I never really got my mind fully out of it. Um, and and you can't afford to um, because one slip up, and you know it could cost you your life, or it could cost someone else their life, which is would be even, would be even worse. So um, it's it's a it, to protect my family. Most you know, I, I I didn't I had very little contact with them. I I did have contact. I tried to have contact. Um, I'd say on the average of you know every other night by something that we don't have out here anymore, which is called payphones. And um, so you know, bad guys would be. I, I had an undercover house in Miami and um, a, a place in New York that I stayed at and. And I was really literally traveling all over Europe, and um, I was in Central America and in the Caribbean. And um, 
bad guys occasionally when I was in Miami would be at payphones. You know, it'd be funny. I, there might be 20 payphones on a bank uh, of payphones in, in Miami, and there'd be Maseratis, BMWs, Mercedes, and you know, guys with polished fingernails, and clearly tons of gold all over them, and they'd be on the phones at night. And they'd be calling other bad guys, trying to avoid detection by the good guys by using a payphone, and, and I'd be there calling good guys, trying to avoid detection from bad guys. So... Um, there's there's a lot of things that you you need you know you need to do there are a lot of things you need to do um, well in advance of even trying to take on a long term undercover role to make sure that you're backstop pro- properly and and that you um, also take the kind of precautions that um, are not going to compromise you. So you really almost have to be one step ahead of the smart guy uh, of the smarter guys and and to keep your to keep your life. Which kind of brings me into the how you finished off and how you actually brought down the bank. Tell everybody how that happened and where it happened because it's right here in Tampa, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, the the undercover operation that's focused uh, in the infiltrator, which is the first major one that I did. I did another one after that, um, but the the one involving the book, the infiltrator. Uh, we decided that we needed to come up with something that was going to get people from many different countries to the. Uh, to the Tampa Bay area because this is where they were going to be indicted and this is where they were um, hopefully going to go to trial. So we, um, I and another undercover agent really felt that, I don't know whether it was truly that they thought they were a close friend of mine or whether they just realized that I was so potentially valuable to them that out of respect uh, they would attend the wedding. And so we did a fake wedding um, when I say fake wedding, I mean, it wasn't really fake. I, I went with a female undercover agent to Innisbrook, and they had no idea that we were agents. And we made all the arrangements for everything, including this huge outdoor tent for uh, 250 people and um, invited people from um, all, a lot of the bad guys, the bankers and the drug traffickers that I had dealt with. And uh, many of them came. And um, the night before the supposed wedding, we um, told them that there was a bachelor party in downtown Tampa and uh, limos would be taking people over. And each one of the bad guys got into a, a limo with two or three other people they thought were friends and family, and those were actually part of the arrest team for them. Uh, they went to downtown Tampa. Um, there's a, a bank building there that's on the corner of Zach and in Florida, and um, there was a place called Macbeth up at the top, um, and that's where they thought the bachelor party was going to be. But uh, they they wound up going up just a few floors to the in, uh, inside garages and uh, were arrested on different floors, and um, and that was the end of the operation. That had to be chilling for you, especially knowing that it was coming to an end and, and so many things could happen, so many things could go wrong. What was going through your mind when that happened? When the takedown occurred, um, you know, after the takedown occurred, I slept for two days. <laughs> I uh, uh, I was mentally, physically more exhausted than I could possibly bear, and the stress, you know, had been pretty intense. Um, not only did I have the people that were coming to the supposed wedding, but there were some suppliers uh, from Colombia who were coming in um, expecting to receive a duffel bag full of cash. 
um, because what had happened a month before um, was rather interesting. My main contact within the Medellin cartel uh, was a guy who was a major transporter. He moved tons of cocaine at a time. And um, he kind of took me in as the son he never had. Um, about a month before the planned fake wedding, um, based on the information that I had from my discussions with him and with some of his associates, we identified a warehouse that had more than a ton of cocaine in it in downtown Manhattan. And he was arrested um, after he tried to flee the warehouse. And when that happened, I was very concerned that I was one of the few people that knew where that was, what was going on, and um, that he would suspect me. And just as you see on TV with the Sopranos or in The Godfather, when somebody gets arrested who's really high up there, people do, as they say, go to the mattresses. They, they stay in their house. They don't call anybody. They don't talk to anybody. They have no idea who the cops are really after, and so I'm playing the role of a bad guy, and I had to do the same thing. And I, I really wasn't contacted for several days, and then I got a phone call from uh, this guy's wife, who had visited him in um, in a uh, jail called the Tombs in, in uh, Manhattan, in New York. And um, she said, Roberto has a message for you, which kind of got me a little concerned. And uh, she said, um, "You're the he wants you to take over for him. You're the only one he feels he can trust, so we want you to collect from the distributors and uh, pay the suppliers. And and so I found myself in a position of 30 days of being in his role as uh, the guy who ran that drug cell um, that he managed, which was also very nerve-wracking because a lot of times he had two partners who had been killed um during the time that I was dealing with him, and I have no idea how many people he might have double-crossed. So now I'm really kind of in his chair, and so that added to the stress. Um, but so when it was when it was finally over, uh, though it was um, clearly it was a relief. Um, I, I really wanted the operation to go longer. I thought that it should have gone longer, several months longer, because there were some offers on the table by bad guys that. Um, really would have, were a unique opportunity. But to a certain extent, I had become um, an information junkie. Information was my heroine. Um, I found myself having climbed through this portal of the real world into the underworld at a position that I thought just no other agent is ever going to be able to get to. And so I felt like I needed to use every second that I could to exploit that and get as much information for um, prosecutions as I, as I possibly could. And I became so, I convinced myself, and, and it's taken me decades to come to this conclusion. It took writing the book. It took, you know, many, 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 many periods of time really thinking about this. But I, I, I think what happened is that I came to a point where I thought that I was in such a unique position that nobody else would get to that I was willing to give up um, if it need be to to make the most of the mission, uh, my family, um, my career. Um, and although I would fight to the end not to have this happen, but my life, um, 
if it was something that was absolutely um, unavoidable as a result of pursuing so aggressively this mission. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a dangerous place for your long-term undercover agent to mentally be, um, because I probably, in hindsight, took a little bit more risks than maybe some people would take. But um, but all in all, it worked out fine, because we we ended the case with about 1,200 recordings of conversations with some very high-level drug traffickers and senior management of the bank. Um, we that was the cornerstone of the prosecution of many, many people. And, um, and not just drug traffickers, but also senior, even board level type people within a, a bank that employed uh, at, at its height about 19,000 individuals and had a presence in 72 countries. So I think that that prosecution of the bank, um, and the ultimate demise of the bank uh, was an important, um, beacon of caution that was sent out to the financial world that the consequences of dealing in this kind of money were going to be rather severe. Unfortunately, in today's day and age, we don't see very many bankers uh, being prosecuted. Um, it seems as though the, uh, the major banks that are admitting to criminal offenses are given opportunities to sign agreements and pay fines and and walk away from um, what I think should be um, an inclusion of the prosecution of the senior management of the bank that caused the criminal conduct that the banks carried out. But that doesn't seem to be something that happens as often as one would hope. But I'm proud to say that it certainly happened in this case. Well, we got about seven minutes left, and I really want to get to both your book and your movie. So let's start with your book. What got you to write your book, and what's it about? Well, I uh, I wound up getting contacted by Universal Studios asking me if I would be willing to work as a technical consultant with Michael Mann on the Miami Vice movie, and I did that. And I worked with him, I worked with Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx and other actors. And at the end of that process, Michael Mann said to me, you know, I'd love to do a movie about your life. I think it's extraordinarily unique. Um, but the hard thing you need to do, you need to do the hard thing first. You need to write a book. And for a man who's so internationally uh, recognized to be as creative as Michael Mann is, um, I mean, some of his movies like Collateral and, and others are just, you know, real classics. And uh, that inspired me to pursue that. And I, um, long story short, wound up doing a book proposal um, and was was told by the uh, publishing company that uh, bought the book that they felt my writing talents were such that I didn't need a ghostwriter, and they wanted me to write it, and so I did. And now that book is available in um, seven languages in more than 50 countries. I just finished last month in a studio in Tampa doing the uh, audiobook read for uh, Random House, which will come out in August. And um, we, of course, sold the movie rights uh, to the book. And um, this past winter, uh, I spent a month in London, uh, a couple of weeks here in Florida. When uh, the movie was shot, Brian Cranston plays the lead. He plays me in the movie. Um, uh, Benjamin Bratt plays the main bad guy, my contact within the cartel. Uh, John Leguizamo is in the movie as my partner. 
Um, there are a number of other actors that are internationally renowned, um, some of whom are better known in Spain and Colombia, but you know others in the U.S. like Olympia Dukakis is in it, and um, Amy Ryan who's in it, and uh, uh, Diane Kruger who's a, a big uh, new star on the scene. So um, we have tremendous director in uh, Brad Furman, who previous to this uh, directed The Lincoln Lawyer and other movies. Um, the team, the creative team, uh, was fantastic. I was, unlike many authors, I was given an opportunity to be very involved. I uh, was involved as an executive producer in the film. We're now in the editing stage. Uh, the, the score is being written, so the unique movie uh, music for the movie is, is in the process of being made. And um, in the second quarter of 2016, um, it'll be internationally released. That's amazing. It's got to it's got to be a little surreal for you. I mean, it would be for me. Yeah, no, it is, and and, and it was surreal meeting these uh, famous uh, actors. Um, they're really just regular people. Ben, um, Benjamin Bratt is just a prince of a guy, uh, very down to earth, and um, and so is John Leguizamo, and and so is Brian Cranston. Uh, they're all just regular people who um, are extraordinarily talented in what they do, and. Um, they make a big difference in uh, in what we're going to see on the screen in uh, the second quarter of 2016. I'm very excited to see it because I've read the book and it's uh, it's definitely an amazing story. I know people are going to really really in, get involved with this when they hear it because it's it's it is surreal and and it's 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 almost like you you can't believe this stuff is really happening, but it is unfortunately. Yeah, well, and, and your listeners can find out all about the book, the movie. Um, at a website, um, it's pretty easy. Robert Mazur, M-A-Z-U-R dot com. So just go to Robert Mazur, M-A-Z-U-R dot com, and you find out all about the book and the movie, and where you can get the book, and um, uh, what the progress of the uh, of the film is. Perfect. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. If they, if uh, can they buy it from the uh, from the website, or do they have to go to like Amazon or uh, Barnes and Nobles or something like that? Well, when you scroll down on the, the tab for book and film, um, there's a thing you can click on for um, where to buy or distribution, and that gives you the uh, links to Amazon and to uh, many of the other um, online um, sellers of books where you can actually purchase the book. All right, mate, uh, Robert, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this story and telling us about the book, telling us about this movie, and we're definitely going to keep an eye on it uh, for t- 2016. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, everybody, and we're going to go to a commercial break, and when we come back, we are going to be listening to some music and have more commentary, so don't go away. Do you love horror, the strange and unusual fantasy creatures or urban legends? Do you want to step inside a dream or nightmare? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out internationally exhibiting artist Jason Dowd and his award-winning photographic collections by visiting www.imaginationartstudios.com. Get inside his mind and experience his inner weird. Okay, everybody, I have on the line Adele Park, and she is uh, a 
author, and she she gave us uh, a couple of these um, unabridged MP3 audiobooks called When Assisted Suicide and Cosmetics Collide, Gadzooks, a comically quirky audiobook. Welcome to the show, Adele. How are you doing today? Well, hi there, Jason. It's wonderful to be on the AME experience and be visiting with your listeners today. Well, we're happy to have you too. You know, there's a lot of things that go into into writing books and and you know the preparation and everything. How did you start to write and and get into the writing field? After I received my bachelor's degree in college, I went on to work at a radio station primarily as a news reporter and news anchor. And so I was writing every day. And then my career kind of evolved into a TV career as well. But again, I was doing news writing more than fictional writing and just kind of writing some short stories for fun in my free time. Then in 2008, I opened a recording studio in St. George and began turning the fictional stories I had written into audiobooks. And so now I have three audiobooks that are available for sale on Amazon, Audible, and Downpour.com. Why did you get into uh, into fictional writing as opposed to like any other type of writing, documentaries or uh, re- you know uh, fic- uh, nonfiction or anything like that? I think because I just wanted to tell a great big whopper. When you work as a news reporter, you're very concerned about not input, not interpreting your bias into your story, and you're always worried about the accuracy of what you're reporting. And so your aim is to give the most unbiased, truthful account that you can. What I wanted to do in my free time was just the opposite, and I wanted to just make up lies about everything so that they fit whatever it was, whatever viewpoint I was trying to get across at a particular time. Was it exciting to be able to do it like that? I mean, you know, just to be able to go out there and make up all kinds of different uh, scenarios, even things that would just be completely, um, well, hopefully, not able to happen in real life. Well, I've been told I have a very vivid imagination, and one thing I do know for sure, all of my audiobooks are very quirky, and I have a quirky sense of humor, and so the word quirky is used in the title of all of my books. In fact, they can kind of loosely be called the quirky audiobook series. And what I have found through writing satire is that I can talk about a lot of very sensitive subjects in sort of a humorous context. We know that comedians have long been responsible for helping to move the needle on a lot of touchy topics, and we know that through humor we're able to examine and change our limiting beliefs. And so what I've done is I've taken what I think are some pretty hot-button issues, and I've made comedies out of them. So, for example, my first audiobook, which is called Jitters, that is a comedy about polygamy. Yikes is a comedy about marijuana. And my latest, Gadzooks, is a comedy about assisted suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you choose, like, assisted suicide? I, I mean, was it, like, is it something that's, like, uh, because of what happened last November with that lady out in, I believe it was Seattle or Oregon or something like that. W- did that help, uh, you know, start the get the idea going to make this audiobook off of that, or is this just something you've been, uh, you know, dealing with maybe in in a personal life? Maybe you knew somebody that was uh, sick and wanted to do it or something. Not really. Uh, Brittany Maynard, uh, the brain cancer patient that you're alluding to, who was who moved to Oregon from California because. She wanted to end her terminal illness, 
had already died after Gadzooks had been released. And so Gadzooks had already been on the market for a couple of months when Brittany Maynard um, took her own life. But that did spark a national debate. To be more specific in terms of Gadzooks, I think a better term for what happens in my story would be public euthanasia. So here's the setup. All of my stories take place in a fictitious polygamous community called Naval Utah. And they are so eager to get to meet God that they get them to heaven in a hurry using a form of belladonna that's sort of psychedelic but also very poisonous. And so what, what the premise of Gadzooks is, is it's about a polygamous lady who takes these terminally ill patients, who she happens to be married to, and sort of nudges them into heaven in a very rapid way. And so that's the comedy of it. Now, as for real life, I think that we have some uh, talking to do about this particular issue. Uh, we have an aging population. We know what's happening with our health care system. And we know it's not sustainable. And we also know that some people would like to have more say in what happens to them in the final days of their lives. I have had several friends who have gone through the hospice experience, and, you know, I can tell you that while the people that work for hospice are wonderful, wonderful people, that doesn't negate the fact that many of these companies are owned by large corporations who stand to benefit by keeping a patient alive maybe longer than they actually would be kept alive. And I'll just give you an example. If you had a pet that was terminally ill or injured, you would take it to the vet, and the vet would um, put your animal down, and you would consider that to be a humane way of dealing with your pet, or a lot of people would. Um, that's sort of a conventional practice. But oftentimes what happens to a terminal patient, a terminal human being, is the doctors all decide, well, we really can't treat this patient anymore. They are terminal. And it's just a matter of, you know, them dying. So we take that person home because they really don't belong in a hospital. Hospitals are there to heal people. And when you get to the point where, you know, treatment isn't working, you really need to not be in a hospital. So a lot of people go to either their homes or to a hospice-type setting. Well, what happens when you get there, or at least when you get home and they begin to bring the morphine to your house, is, um, you know, they have to take away your food and water eventually because they don't want you vomiting or choking or having any kind of aspiration problems uh, while they're giving you all this morphine. And this process of your body shutting down can take weeks. Mm -hmm. And so you would not do that with a pet. You wouldn't take a terminally ill pet home from the doctor and take away its food and water and give it morphine until it dies. That You wouldn't consider that humane. And yet that's pretty standard practice for what we do to human beings. I've been saying that for a long time. I, I'm like, how could, you, how could you find it humane to put an animal down because you don't want to see him suffer, but yet you're going to let your, your, your son, your daughter, your mother, your, your father, your grandparents suffer to the end of time to where they finally die. You know, I knew a guy that had cancer. And he went home in hospice, and he was in excruciating pain. Even the morphine didn't help. But he lived like that for almost a month. I mean, to me, that that to me is cruel and unusual. He didn't he didn't have a problem with him dying because he knew he was going to die, and he was actually for a, an assisted suicide, but it was illegal to do so. And that kind of bothers me. It's like, how can it be good for one and not the other? 
So I think we're having this debate now, but it's one that has to be handled really carefully because, first of all, the rights of the patient also need to be taken into consideration. And some people would opt for the option of, you know, having this morphine sort of ramp down. And for those people, and I, I was actually related to one um, because of his spiritual beliefs, that was how he wanted to do it. And those patients should be allowed to continue having the death experience uh, that would work best for them mm-hmm. um, if we have a choice in it. So I think that we need to have choice all the way around. So I'm not trying to dictate what happens with a patient that uh, doesn't want to be involved in assisted suicide. They most certainly should never have to be in a situation where, where that was happening to them. But for people who would choose that, um, they don't have much choice right now. We can't all move to Oregon. Now, there are a couple of other states where assisted suicide is legal. I believe that Vermont is one of them. One of them's in the east. And there are some assisted suicide type of legislations that are going around. This has not been a very rapidly moving movement, however. Um, I don't see change happening lightning speed. I think this will be something that our aging population will have to come to terms with because I just don't think that we can can sustain what we're doing right now. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. It def- definitely has to be a choice, and not by you know, oh well, we're not you're you're terminal, so you're just going to go, and we're, we're just going to euthanize you. I mean, that's not right either. So, <laughs> I mean, I could understand. The death panels, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and unfortunately, I think they're coming. But um, so let's talk about your your audio book a little bit more. Why did you choose an audio book and not a traditional book? Well, I'm going to tell you a little story, Jason, that all the writers in your audience probably can relate to. So. I wrote uh, my first book, and I did everything in the world I could to try and get published. And I could never get a publisher interested in representing me because I hadn't, or I could never get a publisher interested because I didn't have an agent, and I couldn't get an agent because I hadn't been published. And so it was like this impossible <laughs> thing to get into. And, and I wrote three books and, and went through this experience three times, and finally I just asked myself why I even wanted to be published in the first place, and it came down to this. I thought, well, if I'm published, then if it sells well, then maybe we can turn it into an audiobook. And then it was sort of like, why would I take all those steps when I can just turn it into an audiobook? And that's what I did. So I have a radio background, so I formed an LLC called Straight to Audio Productions, and my audiobooks are not available in print format at all. I never did turn them into books. They went straight to audio. In fact, Gad Zooks, my latest audiobook, was written specifically to be an audiobook, whereas with Jitters and Yikes, I had written them as novels mm-hmm. and then turned them into audiobooks by writing them in first-person narratives. So all of my audiobooks have a full cast. Um, for example, Gadzooks has nine actors in it. They all tell their stories in first-person narratives, and then I always have a wraparound narration. With Jitters, because it's about a radio shock jock, the wraparound narration is a series of newscasts, and then the actors sort of react to the news of the day, and that's how we advance the plot. With Gadzooks, it's narrated by a polygamist who is up in heaven looking down on 
the action and commenting upon it. And so I like to kind of do different things with narration. I think it's fun, and because I have an indie studio, I can sort of experiment around with these wacky different ways of telling a story. And I bet you have a little bit more creativity, too. It's kind of like making a movie, but it's not actually a movie. It's just something auditory for your ears. So does that give you a little bit more... um, a little bit more of a uh, of an adventure because, like, you can almost turn it into like an old fashioned radio style TV show that we used to listen to. And I think that there are some moves to get back to some of that old timey radio because I've I've found some things on the internet where people are sort of going back to that and making their own like live commercials. And I think it's really great that we have internet radio now because it opens up the market to so many creative people. And we don't have to follow a specific format. We don't have to play the same 25 songs four and five times a day. You know, we can have an Internet radio station and have uh, no song ever repeated if we don't want. So I, I think that now is a really good time to be an artistic type. And I know from your website that it's all about people in the arts. And it's just a great time to be doing this kind of thing. We have the opportunity to get our content out on the Internet. Now, how much more difficult is it to actually make an audiobook as opposed to a, a novel? Or, like you did, when you took it, when you wrote a novel expecting it to be a novel and then you turned it into a audiobook, what is the difference in complexity? Well, for me, it involved rewriting the entire book because it wasn't written in first-person narratives to begin with. And so I basically rewrote both of both Yikes and Jitters. But with Gatsooks, I knew I was going to write an audiobook, so I immediately started writing with the narration in place, with each individual story told in first person. So I kind of planned for it. But for people that want to turn their work into an audiobook, I would like to pass along a great tip. Um, there's a site called ACX. It is a subsidiary of Audible.com, which is a part of the Amazon family. So ACX is a really great meeting house where if you wrote something and you wanted somebody to record your work and you didn't want to do it yourself, you could go to ACX and you could find a studio to produce your work. Or let's say you had a studio and you wanted to find a certain narrator, you could go there and audition all kinds of different narrators. You can even name the amount of money you want to spend on your production and put a bid out there and see if anyone would be interested. There are some narrators out there who will do all the production on their end for a cut of the proceeds of the sale. So there's lots of different ways now for people to get their content turned into audiobooks. And if what you do through ACX meets their standards, then you can apply to sell your work on audible.com. And that's really where all a lot of the audiobook listeners are going is audible.com because it's just a very easy site. They have, you know, every title you could ever want. And so this is just a really good way for people um, on the ground floor to get into the audio business. And you don't have to have a big cash outlay, especially if you work to deal with a narrator who has their own studio. And there are a lot of them out there that do. Now, if I had, if I had a book... And I wanted to bring it to you and say, turn this into an into an audio in a, into an audio book. What would you tell me? Uh, like, let's just say it's a uh, three hundred pages. What would you, what would I be looking at if I came to you? If you came to me personally, I don't know because I don't operate my studio that way. 
Um, I hire actors to come in and work for me to record the work that I have written. So I'm not really sure what a typical studio would charge for something like that. I'm a non-union studio, so when I hire an actor, I do a full buyout, which means that they don't get a, a portion of the proceeds. I just pay them a certain amount of job, a certain amount of money for doing a set job. But this is not a steadfast thing. You can, like I say, through ACX, you can go in there and, and sort of name your price. You could say, okay, I have a 300-page novel. My budget is $500. Is there anybody that would produce my book for $500? Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe somebody would do it for that. Probably not, but maybe they would do it for $500 and a portion of the proceeds. So you can kind of work your own deal. You don't have to fit into someone else's format. That's what's different now. You can make all the choices yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, I see, I see on your, on your uh, CD here, it says the MP3 edition is designed to be an MP3 CD players. So they don't always play in every, in every type of uh, CD player. Is there a way of making it into so it would fit into just about every CD player that you can, that you can go into, like in a car or anything like that? Well, actually, MP3 plays in any car that's newer or any CD player that's newer. Most cars will play an MP3. Every computer will play an MP3. The difference between MP3 and WAVE is the size of the file. So, for example, I gave you copies of Gadzooks. That is a a seven-and-a-half-hour production on one CD. If you were to do it on a WAVE format, that would be seven CDs. Mm-hmm. seven or possibly eight CDs. So that's the difference. And and so it costs a lot more for the consumer, and it also costs a lot more for the producer. And the reason I put mine in MP3 format was not only was it cheaper for me, but people are telling me that, that they like it better because they don't have to keep changing the disc. And I sort of got the idea because I had purchased a Stephen King audiobook, which was, I'm not kidding, like 30 hours long. And he had it in MP3 format on three CDs. And it was so easy to use. And I thought, well, if Stephen King can do it, then I can do it too. Um, So it cuts down on my cost, which means that I don't have to charge as much for my products. Although, here's my honest assessment of any sort of disc, whether it be MP3 or Wave. That's going away. Most people, or at least a lot of audiobook listeners, the ones that listen to a lot of them, oftentimes prefer to do it as an MP3 download, which they just put on their iPod or whatever kind of listening device they normally use. And then they can plug that into their car. They can plug it into their stereo system. They can take it on a walk. You know, people are more mobile now. Um, So, or you could download it as an MP3 and then put it in the cloud and, and use it when you wanted to. So I really think that this physical media is going away or at least is going to be less prevalent. And so that was one of the other deciding factors when I decided to make them MP3s. Jitters, my first audiobook, was done in WAV format. It was six and a half hours long and it was six discs. Um, so that was, it cost six times more. Um, for me to produce that, and then that cost, part of that gets passed on to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And people have told me, wow, that's just kind of hassle. I have to keep changing the disc. Because most new CD players will play an MP3. Mm-hmm. 
And I can understand that because, I mean, I have all my CDs from when I was younger with all my music and stuff like that. It literally takes up one entire shelf of probably three to 400 CDs. And I have almost 3,000 of those songs. And most of those I only got for just one song anyway. But I have about over 3,000 songs on my MP3 player, which is like there's no space. You know, it's awesome. So I, 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 see, I see where you're going with that. I, I do believe that uh, the digital media is going to be the way to go in the near future. Yeah, and it's better for the consumer, too, because it's less hassle. That's right. <laughs> that is absolutely right. Well, we've got about three minutes left, so I want to give everybody, I want to give you the chance to tell everybody where they can get your uh, audiobooks. Okay, so if people would go to either Amazon, Audible, or Downpour.com, which is also an MP3 download site, uh, they can just Google my name, Adele Park, or they can... Uh, Type in the names of any of my projects, uh, Jitters, Yikes, and Gadzooks. And if you type in any of those three words, my audiobooks should come up. And you can also visit my website at www.quirkyaudiobooks.com. All right. Thank you so much for that. And uh, also, everybody, before we go, I do have two editions of Gadzooks, uh, When Su- when Assisted Suicide and Cosmetics Collide. If you want to be, uh, if you want to get one of these, all you have to do is go to our Facebook page, uh, com forward slash the AME experience, like the page, and tell us why you'd like the book. And uh, we, if we choose you, which will be in about three weeks, uh, that'll give everybody enough time to get in there and do it. We will give it... W- we will pull your name, and if you win it, you'll get it. So that's all you got to do. Uh, thank you, Adele, for coming on the show and spending some time with us, telling us about your books and telling us about your career and, and your studio. This is amazing. Thank you, Jason. It was a lot of fun. Anytime. And everybody, we are going to go to a commercial break. Hi, I'm internationally exhibiting artist Jason Dowd, and I released one of my most profound photographic collections to date, my 3D collection. Since 2009, I've looked for ways to bring my art to life in ways that would amaze my audience. After a rare malfunction at Disney, I realized that 3D was the way to go. Now the series can be seen in galleries all the way across the United States. If you want to see this collection, contact my studio, Imagination Art Studios, by visiting www.imaginationartstudios.com and ask how. While you're there, check out my award-winning Dreams, Nightmares, Fears, and Fantasy collection, as well as my Morbid Sensations collection. Again, that's www.imaginationartstudios.com. All right, everybody. Unfortunately, this is the end of the show. It has been an hour with you guys already. Seems like it just started. But I really hope you guys enjoyed our guests this week. We try every week to bring in some great guests that either will inspire you with art or just inspire you with their story. Because that's really where art comes from, the inside story that we all have. Everybody has a story. You know, it's our life. Every time you put something through your life, you have a story to tell, and that story can become art. So I want everybody to challenge yourself this week. Open up your eyes to something new. Get rid of the blinders. Stop being so insulted. Look at the world around us. See the beauty that is there. Because there is what you is where you'll find the inspiration to create something amazing. It doesn't have to be art. It can be something mechanical. It could be something, a new business. It could be anything that inspires you to, to go out there and make a difference and make something of yourself. Make that legacy. So until next week, guys, stay creative and and keep those creative juices flowing. Good night, everybody.